thanks for being here. I'm Taylor, and I'm the pastor. Um, I'm a pastor here, here at the church. So, we, this is, the, this is the Christian high holiday. We get to celebrate and talk about um, resurrection and, and, and drill into it a little bit. I'm going to start with uh, something that those of you who know me will not be surprised that I'm starting with, which is the Lord of the Rings. Um, we have a few of us that are reading through it right now, uh, real time, in 13 months this year. And we meet monthly to talk about the few chapters we've been through. And I was thinking about it as I was reading a few pages yesterday. And you know, we just finished the Council of Elrond where they sort of start out on this journey. It starts to materialize and they realize, okay, here's our plan. Our plan is to take this ring of power that they found, the Lord of the Rings. There's this one ring of power. And it basically has cast a shadow over all of Middle-earth because an evil lord named Sauron has made it for himself to captivate all, all peoples in Middle-earth. And it's a really powerful ring. Whoever wears it gains tremendous power. And they say, we're going to do something that he'll never expect, which is we're going to take an approach of weakness. We're not going to use the ring for power to engage the enemy in, in war. We're actually going to destroy the ring. We're going to take it into Mordor, where it was created, the heart of darkness, into enemy territory with a couple of the weakest creatures in Middle-earth, hobbits, little, little dwarf people with hairy feet that like mushrooms. And we're going to take that ring into the heart of enemy territory, right under his gaze, and we're going to destroy it. And what looks like weakness and what looks like defeat actually ends up overturning this dark veil that's cast over Middle-earth. And it breaks this power of evil, and it helps Middle-earth enter into a new age of prosperity where the, where the king returns and the king reigns. You know, Tolkien was a Christian. It's no accident that that, it wasn't allegorical, but it came out in this story for him because the gospel of the cross of Christ, where he, in form of weakness, uh, buried sin for us, became a sin offering in our place for us, and, um, and did something that looked to the world, looked to his enemies, and looked to Satan as, as a complete defeat. Dying on the cross, everybody thought it was over. The disciples thought it was over. The women thought it was over. Everybody that was on his side and against him thought it was finished. But actually, it was the ultimate knife into the heart of the enemy. Because in, in doing that, uh, what he did is he broke the power of darkness. He paid for sin. He paid for hell. He paid for death for any who would look to him. And his resurrection is proof of that. And his resurrection this morning, as we're going to see, a lot of us think of it, I think, as just sort of a man rising from the dead. And we either believe in that or we don't. Okay, Jesus rose from the dead. That's, that's pretty cool. But actually, it's, it's not really referred uh, to like that in the New Testament scriptures. It's referred to as something that the representative of a broken, sinful human race um, by whom all of creation has been broken. Uh, it, it's represented as uh, something that um, happens to the representative of the human race. He dies, he buries sin, and hell, um, and defeats Satan, and then when he rises, he brings in his train a new age. He, crack, he, he destroys the power of sin and death that's been cast over this middle earth, over, over the earth, and over all creation. And when he rises, he begins a new order. He begins a new day. That's really how the resurrection is talked about um, and, and celebrated, and that's why we have hope in it. So I want to drill down into that this morning, into this, these 10... Uh, pretty unassuming, seemingly unassuming verses, and I'll be jumping around, but you can just stay here in Matthew. So, as we look at the resurrection, three points. I think you'll have them up on the, 
on the screen there, but the witnesses, the welcome, and the dawn of a new day. The witnesses, the welcome, and the dawn of a new day. So first, the witnesses. We see here, as Austin mentioned, that the women are the first eyewitnesses to the empty tomb of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Um, not to the resurrection itself. Nobody saw Jesus rise, but that wasn't the point. But to the resurrected one, to the resurrected one, the one who was, was dead. We saw him on a cross. We were standing in a distance. Some of us have fled. Nobody was with him, really. At the end, he, he died alone. Uh, it looked like defeat, but now we have met the risen and resurrected Lord. Same body, although it's been glorified. He had the nail prints in his hands and feet. Um, he sounds the same, but somehow he's different. And so uh, we look at the witnesses this morning. The first eyewitnesses were women. This is embarrassing. I want to camp out here for just a little bit. This is embarrassing as a historical account for a number of reasons. Um, so only a couple women show up, according to Matthew. Uh, there might have been a few more, um, according to another gospel, Luke 24.10. But Mary, uh, and Mary, for sure, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and, and uh, Mary Magdalene, so Jesus, this is why it's embarrassing that these two women show up alone at the tomb on the early on the third day. Because Jesus said over and over to his disciples that he, quote, must go to Jerusalem, and this is way before he has to go to Jerusalem. He said, I must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. Notice the word must. I must do these things. It's part of the plan of God. And what? And on the third day be raised. He says this in Matthew 16, 21, and the verse begins this way. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must do these things. In other words, uh, it's an iterative sort of idea that he said it over and over and over to them. I have to go die. It's why I came. It's my mission. It's part of my plan. I'm not just a guy dying. I don't deserve to die. Everyone else does because of sin, because of your rebellion against God. I'm doing it as a representative, and I too will rise as a representative that I have, and anyone who looks to me has defeated sin and its penalty, death, and hell, and Satan. And so he says this over and over and over his disciples. I'm going to die, but then three days later, I'm going to rise. But um, did any of his disciples that heard this over and over and over again show up, just even not out of belief, but maybe just out of curiosity on the third day? Was anybody, were any of his disciples that he said this over, over, to, uh, over and over again to there? No, none of them were there. Uh, just two women showed up. And actually, contrary to what Austin was suggesting, Austin, I think, was giving them a little too much credit, uh, they, according to some other Gospels, didn't even show up because they were thinking maybe he'll rise. They were actually just showing up with a bunch of spices because Jesus died and was buried on Friday in haste because the evening, Friday evening was when the Sabbath, the Shabbat, the Jewish Shabbat started, and it went all the way till the evening on Saturday, and you had to rest according to the law, and you couldn't do things like prepare bodies for burial. And so they had, they put him in about 100 pounds of spices, but the women were going back just to sort of give, put a lot more perfume and spice and, and just do anything they could as they were grieving. Just uh, beg, beg the, the, the soldiers at the tomb to remove the stone. Can we please get in there and just love our dead Lord a little more? That's what they were doing. They were not showing up because they thought he'd risen. So the disciples didn't show up. None of them showed up, even out of curiosity. The women showed up, but not because they thought, oh, he said he would rise. Maybe he has. Um, now, Matthew wrote this gospel. Matthew was a disciple. And Matthew didn't show up on the third day. This is embarrassing, like I said. 
Why would he have written this down? Why would the other gospel writers have written this down, recorded it in history, if it embarrassed them like that, if it were not true? If it were a story fabricated by the church to sort of say, okay, here's another power structure. We're going to say all these things. Uh, We're going to have legitimacy and credence. No, they wouldn't have made it up in that way. Um, In fact, not only did the disciples not show up and totally neglect Jesus's saying, I, I will rise again after the third day when I'm, after I'm crucified. Not only did the women show up, but not for the right reasons, but it was Jesus' enemies alone who remembered his words. Um, they didn't believe that he would rise, but we see in uh, Matthew 27, verses 62 and following, the chapter right before this, that Jesus' enemies who had him crucified, the theological leaders, the pastors okay, of the day, the scribes and the Pharisees, They were the ones who went to Pilate and said, give us guards, because this imposter said, after I die, I'll rise on the third day. So just in case his disciples get any crazy ideas and try to steal his body and stage a resurrection, we want to post guards. And he's like, you have guards, go do what you want. So that's why the stone was rolled. That's why the guards were there. It's because Jesus' enemies remembered. That makes the disciples look even worse. Of course, they didn't believe if he arrives, but they just thought that it might be some hijinks being played, and so they wanted to make sure they weren't, they weren't played out. Perhaps worst of all, though, here's maybe the worst reason that this is embarrassing. It was women alone, as I've said, who showed up. Um, and one of them was a, a woman of former disrepute, Mary Magdalene. She had had demons driven out of her. Not a great character witness, okay? Um, in this time and place, women were simply not considered reliable witnesses, okay, in this time and place, in this culture. This wasn't a cultural gist. This was actually formalized, that women weren't accepted as witnesses in courts of law in this culture, okay? So Josephus, who was a Jewish historian at the time, he wrote this, from women let no evidence be accepted because of the levity and temerity or audacity of their sex. N.T. Wright Uh, who was a scholar that was just here in Houston a few weeks ago, in his tome on the resurrection, page 607, says this, women were simply not acceptable legal witnesses. Luke confirms this attitude in his gospel to his embarrassment, again, uh, in 2410, when he says, now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna the Mary, Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them, see there's the other women with them, who told these things to the apostles. Get this line. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. Again, just sort of hammering in the nail of embarrassment. Like the disciples, in every way, they're surrounded by the historical facts. Jesus said over and over he was going to rise. He was our leader. We saw him crucified just like he said. Did we show up even out of interest at the tomb? No. Nope. Nada. No one. The only people that did, not out of faith, but to, to anoint the body even more, were women They were the only eyewitnesses, the first eyewitnesses to the resurrected Christ. And in this culture, they were clearly not accepted as reliable witnesses. Again, um, if you're trying to make up a story to make the church seem like a reliable institution, you're not going to write this story. The only explanation is that it happened this way, that it happened this way. Um, It was these same apostles who didn't show up and who are looking really bad here in this historical record who, quote, turned the Mediterranean world upside down weeks later by preaching Christ crucified and resurrected. Super bold. Many of them, all but John, according to history and tradition, were murdered. 
or martyred for refusing to change their story. But here, at the empty tomb on the third day, their story is, yeah, at first we didn't believe the women who were the only ones at the tomb early Sunday morning. They came back running wild with fear and excitement saying he had risen and we, didn't, we just didn't believe him. We thought they were being silly. Again, this resurrection account and the others, if you want to look at them, they corroborate with different but complementary details. Um, by eyewitnesses of Christ's murder on a Roman cross, it cannot have been invented. The best you can say is they mistook certain things, but they certainly did not fabricate. It just doesn't, it doesn't make any sense for them to have made it up in this way. They would not have done it. Um, and many of them, again, bore this testimony to the death. In fact, 11 of the 12 apostles um, to the death. The well-worn yarn that the disciples and ancients uh, in general were more credulous or stupidly believing without evidence, right, than we who have science, uh, who have science and pair religion with superstition, the idea that they were more credulous, that ancients were more credulous than we, is, is just hogwash. Um, we've seen by these brief accounts how actually incredulous, incredibly almost incredulous, the disciples were. They didn't even show up out of curiosity, okay? They were just hiding away in fear. They certainly didn't believe that Jesus had resurrected. Even when the, even when the two Marys came corroborating what Jesus had been saying all along to them throughout his ministry, they still didn't believe, and they have it here on record. So they weren't credulous. They were the opposite, according to the facts. They were incredulous. If you look down at the end of this chapter in Matthew 28, Matthew's amazingly frank comment in verse 17, he says, as Jesus is commissioning them, we call it the Great Commission, go and make, I have all power. Everything's been given to me. I'm victorious over death and sin and hell. God the Father has accepted my payment. Anyone who looks to me will be saved. I'm going to the Father to reign and to rule and you with me. Now, therefore, go and make disciples. And what does Matthew say in verse 17? Still, some doubted. So honest. So unbelieving. Just like we would be. Okay, so that's the witnesses, in short. Let me do this before I, one last aside, before I jump into the welcome, point two. All this talk about women not being considered reliable witnesses. The point here is, one, that they weren't so we can accurately read these testimonies. But two, ancient Near Eastern cultures did not trust women, but God did. That's an aside I want, you to, I want to rest in your heart and your head for a little bit, especially if you're a woman. God did. God entrusted. The resurrected Lord chose whom he would have witness him first and take that report to his disciples. And whom did he choose? Women. And one of ill repute. Okay? He entrusted them. And what a larger point, if we step back from this, is the scriptures are God's word, and they are constantly exploding our cultural misconceptions and blind spots and broken paradigms, okay? And they do this in a number of ways. But when, when we are reading God's word and it confronts us and assaults something that we hold sacred, we need to check ourselves and say, wait a minute. This is God's word, to read it in community and to say, what is this truth, and if it's at odds with what I believe, especially if it's what I believe because we need to say, maybe what I believe is, is cultural, it's culturally influenced, and maybe it needs to be corrected rather than me using culture to correct God's word. You see how that happens here? So that can happen in a variety of cases. To mention a few, for care for the poor, um, which the Bible wholeheartedly endorses from cover to cover, to sanctity of all human life, 
to gender, I'm just picking some cultural hotspots, right? Gender roles, um, equal worth of man and woman, different roles between men and women, just to name just a few. These things, some, we hear even these things and we're kind of, some of us rise up, but we need to remember that, you know, we, our grandparents believed things culturally that we scoff at now and go, how could you have been so blind? Don't be so presumptuous as to think that our grandkids won't look at our culture and won't look at some of the things that we believe and just go, how could they have been so blind? The Bible shines a light on things that we can't see because we're culturally bound, okay? It's outside, it's God's word written through culture, but over and above culture as well because it's God's word written through men. So that's, that's that aside. That's the witnesses, okay? So we got some real historical nitty-gritty um, uh, integrity here. The second thing is the welcome. So the witnesses and the welcome. First of all, under wel- the welcome that Jesus gives, reason, reasons to believe. So the, the women, um, they see the empty tomb, and you can go to Luke 24, verses 5 through 7 for this too. You don't have to turn now, but they, they, see, they, they see what they're not expecting. They come to anoint the body with spices, and what they get is, a resurrected Christ, just like, well, it's empty. They haven't seen the Christ yet, right? It's an empty tomb, and they're just blown away. They're so confused. What is happening? Um, and angels appear, and the women just hit the ground. These fearsome, fiery, awesome creatures, not what they're expecting. And the angels give this almost comical speech in Luke. And I think here, too, as the women's faces are in the dirt, literally, the, the angels say, why are you seeking, hello, why are you seeking the living among the dead? You've come to a tomb, but he told you he was going to rise. He's not here, but he's risen. Remember how he told you, end quote. So this is like the ultimate told you so. This is the ultimate told you so, but they don't rub their faces in it, as it were. They just say, look, he told you over and over and over and over again this would happen. You can't, you're not going to find him here. Just like he said, it's empty. Um, and then they say this in Matthew 28, 6. They say, come and see the place where he lay. And I just want to say this. What they're saying here is come and get empirical evidence, all the evidence you need now and moving forward that helps you understand that Christ has risen from the dead, that he's beaten death, beaten sin, beaten Satan, beaten hell. Um, they don't chastise the women, except for kind of comically and a little lightly, like, told you so. Now come check out the empty tomb. Um, listen, the stone was not, when I think about, and when I have in the past thought about the, the stone that's been rolled away in the empty tomb, a lot of times I think of it as it was so Christ could show the world, well, it was for Christ. It was so he could show that he was, no, it was for us. That, what do the angels say? You come and see. Come and take a look. Root around. Come and look around in the empty tomb and see. Christ he later appears to disciples and then disappears right after he breaks the bread at Luke 24 on the Emmaus Road and he goes somewhere else. They have a locked door even after they've heard he's resurrected. Some haven't seen him yet and they still don't believe. And so there's a locked door and they're all hiding up in the upper room and he just appears. He just walks through the wall. He's got a body, but it's resurrected. It's glorified. He can do things with that body that we can't in our broken humanity. And he, doesn't, he could have passed right through the stone. He passed right through the grave clothes, as we'll see in a second. He didn't need for himself to roll that stone away. He did it for us. He's inviting us to take a look at these texts to, in community, by ourselves, to look at the evidence for the resurrection, to consider it, to weigh it. God is not afraid of evidence. It's his friend. It's the friend of truth. And so he invites the women in, come and take a look for yourselves. Um, If you look at John's account, John says that um, he walked in with Peter after the women had said, ah, 
he's risen. They were wild with fear and excitement, just like you might expect. They were so afraid, but overjoyed. And the disciples say, we thought you were being silly. We had to go check it out for ourselves, and they take off. And so John and Peter enter the tomb, and John makes this comment that the burial cloths were lying there separate from the cloth that was around Jesus' face, and that was folded nice and neat. What a strange detail. Now, in this uh, age, in the ancient Near East, there was no such thing as, there was no such literary genre as historical fiction. We have it today. It was invented by a Scotsman, um, uh, as everything, the TV was invented by the Scotsman, the, the artificial sheep was, you know, everything was invented by the Scotsman. Um, but so was the, uh, the uh, historical novel. In about the 18th century, it, it did not exist. It wouldn't exist for centuries at this point. So the idea of writing something with these sort of random, strange details in it, just to sort of make up a story, that, that genre didn't even exist, nor does it add up, unless these things actually happen. This, is, this has all the marks of ancient historical reporting. So one, one thing that, those, that that tells us, though, aside from it happened this way, John looked around and saw the grave clothes and then uh, empty. Jesus had passed through them. A hundred pounds, by the way, of spices and linen wrapped around him okay, just passed through them. But then the, the face cloth neatly wrapped up. One thing, and you might have heard this, but not a grave robber. Not, that's something that the evidence there says, somebody didn't grab this body, and first of all, why would you take off 100, why would you take off anything binding a dead body that's in the middle of decomposing, first of all? You wouldn't do it if you stole the body. Secondly, nice and neatly wrapped and laid to one side, as if to say, Death is finished, done and dusted, not in a rush. I'm victorious. Here it is over here on the side. Bye-bye. I mean, that's what, just little details like that. Jesus is victorious over death. So John gives us that, um, that detail. And then, again, back to, back to Peter and John, this aside, John's account of him and Peter running to the tomb after the women tell them, he, his tomb's empty. We met, we met the risen Lord. Um, I love this because John, he never mentions his own name out of modesty, but you know it's John and Peter, and Peter is the hasty one, just like me. He's the brash, hasty, speaks before he thinks, I'll figure it out later kind of guy. And John says, the beloved disciple, which is, that means him, outran Peter, because John's younger. John was probably the youngest disciple, and he's just got some legs on him still. Peter's a little older. And John outruns him, but John is more reserved. He's more of a thinker. He's quieter. And he stops out of reverence. He sees that the tomb is empty from the outside and the stone's been rolled away. And there's a sense, no doubt, of awe and life bursting forth from the tomb. And he stops. He beats Peter, but he stops. And then Peter catches up and just, just bolts right in, just brushes right past John, you know, breathless, into the empty tomb. Doesn't even think about stopping. And I just love that. Again, historical fiction didn't exist. Why would John give us these details that line up exactly with their personalities? Adds nothing to the plot line, unless it happened this way. Um, Luke 24, 39, Jesus says this, under reasons to believe, see my hands and my feet, he says to the disciples. Touch me and see. This is after some of them were still incredulous. They still were doubted. They still didn't believe until I see Jesus. And he says, he, he, said, he doesn't say, I'm going to turn you into jelly. You left me at the cross, and now you still won't believe, you hard-headed punk. He doesn't say that. He says, any evidence you need, but blessed are those who have not seen me and yet believe. Come and touch me. And he says, anyone have anything to eat here? Broiled fish? Yeah, a piece of bread? Come on. And he eats in front of them. A ghost doesn't eat, is what he says. A ghost won't eat anything. I'm not a ghost, guys. 
I'm the, I, I had, this is my, my body glorified. I'm resurrected over death and sin and everything I hung on the cross for. Don't disbelieve, but believe. He gladly gave them reasons. Every single one of them doubted for different reasons for different amounts of time. But by the end, every single one of them was either tortured, John, thrown in a vat of oil according to tradition, but wouldn't die and so exiled to the, to the island of Patmos, the rock island of Patmos where he wrote Revelation. The rest of them martyred for their faith, sawn in two, heads chopped off, on and on it goes, saying, you know, if, if this is a story, you know, we're not, we're going to say, I recant. But they went to their deaths saying, we believe. Um, reasons to rejoice under the welcome, reasons to rejoice. Um, Matthew 28, 9, Jesus says, and behold, it says, and behold, verse 9, Jesus met them and said, greetings. Literally, this word means rejoice or be glad. Um, colloquially, I'm glad to see you and you should be glad to see me. I think we pass over this quickly because greetings, it just sounds like, you know, howdy, what we would say to somebody. Um, but actually, we pass over it because I don't think we do a good enough job of putting ourselves often into their place. Think about it. They were not expecting this. The last thing they saw was Christ crucified on the cross. None of them expected the resurrection. So first of all, um, some think he's a ghost, and a ghost is not good news, so they're terrified. And so he's encouraging them, you know, don't be terrified. Secondly, though, they all left him to die. Every single one of them. They all left him to die. Um, the last, that's the last encounter that anybody had with him, was Christ vanquished and dead. His return could mean vengeance for his followers that abandoned him on the cross, but what he's saying here in be glad, rejoice, is this is emphatically not the case. What looked like a defeat was actually victory. My defeat was victory for you. My war with God was peace with God for you. This is really, really good news for you. Greetings. Be glad and rejoice. His resurrection means that our sins have been fully paid for. That's what Paul says in Romans 4.25. Why was he delivered over? For our transgressions, for our law-breaking. But why was he raised from the dead? What does Paul say? For our justification. The fact that he was raised means God the Father accepted his payment for your sins on the cross. For anyone who would look to him for salvation. Okay, and it also means that we don't have to be afraid of death anymore because he's exploded death from the inside out. Okay, um, so reasons to believe, reasons to rejoice, and um, under Christ's welcome, finally, we are family. So the angels refer to the disciples in verse 7, and then Matthew, as the narrator, refers to the disciples in verse 8. And then in verse 10, Jesus says to the women, Go and tell what? My brothers. Go and tell my brothers. Uh, a commentator says this on this verse. He says, In this one word is crammed the whole New Testament gospel of forgiveness. For Jesus could have called his cowardly disciples a lot of names we haven't read in the Bible. But he didn't do that. He didn't do that. He called them brothers here and hereafter. In other words, what does this mean? Their position has changed. They are now brothers of Christ who have one father. They have been, what it means to be a believer isn't, I'm in a club, we all do the same things, we all say the same creed. Now, we may all say the same creed, I hope we do, with variations, perhaps, throughout the denominations, but it doesn't mean anything less than that a Christian is someone who, is, who was dead and is now alive, who was at war with God 
and now who is at peace with God and has all the inheritance of a son and who is now a son or a daughter of the Father. A Christian is someone that is a qualitatively new person with a new DNA. That's what Jesus is saying here. Um, In John 20, verse 17, he says, tell them I'm going, he says this to the women, tell them I'm going to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Again, he's made us children through his work. We have the same status that he does. But he also says, I'm going to my God and to your God. Jesus, he's talking as a man here. He is God, but he's also a man. He's the God man, 100% in both cases. What he's saying here is that I died in your place, representing, representing you fully as a man, and I remain a man, and I am always interceding for you, going to bat for you before the Father if you trusted in me. I am alive as a man. Before the incarnation, Jesus, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, was not a man. But at the incarnation, he became a baby, grew up to be a man, was resurrected a man to represent us, and remains a man and will forever. If he ever lost his manhood, he would cease to represent us, and we would be lost. But he represents us as a human who has broken the bonds of death. Again, the resurrection isn't some guy rising from the dead for himself. It is all of humanity rising to a new life that's no longer bound by sin, by death, and by hell. All those who look to Christ, it's a new humanity that Christ has risen on behalf of. It's a representative rising, not just a guy rising for himself. Um, okay, so that's the witnesses and the welcome. And I want to finish with point three, the dawn of a new day. The dawn of a new day. Matthew 28.1, the first verse that Austin read, says this, Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. Um, okay, so again, a verse that we could easily pass over. We could easily pass over. So after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day, the first day being Sunday, that's why we celebrate Easter on Sunday, uh, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. Okay, the day of rest and worship for the Jews... The Sabbath, the Shabbat, was what day? It was Saturday. It wasn't Sunday. It was Saturday. And this is because God, as recorded in Genesis 1, uh, made all things. He worked six days, and then he rested on the seventh. And when he gives the law to Israel, he says, likewise, as a people, follow my pattern. I want you to work six days, and I want you to rest on the seventh. And so the day that I rested the last day after my work, following my work, was Saturday. And so the Jews would rest at the end of the week. The point is, they would rest on Saturday, which was the end of the work week. So Sunday was the first day of the work week. You worked Sunday through Friday, and then you rested at the end of that, of that toil. And so the Sabbath was really a resting from work, but under the curse, um, creation made... Work became difficult. Work, work still is difficult for us. It's painful. It's, uh, it, it puts sweat on our brow. It's, it's sometimes really boring, hard in a, in a myriad of ways. Um, and the Sabbath was uh, rest from that toil. But Christ's resurrection changed all that. And we see that in, just sort of embedded and folded into this first verse. Now God's people, as we do, worship on Sunday which is the first day of the week. Why? Um, The new Sabbath, 
the new day of rest and worship is not at the end of work to rest from all that toil. It's now the beginning of the week to signal that a change has happened. This first day is a sort of, to use a literary term, a synecdoche. It's a part to represent the whole. It's rest, the first day of the week, which ought to be work, is rest. And there are so many implications from that. A new age has started. Not an age in which you toil, toil, grind, grind, and then you have to put your hands on your proverbial knees, as it were, to take a breather. But instead, everything that moves forward from this point forward is to be characterized by Christ's rising to a new type of life where sin, the power of sin has been broken, death has been defeated, Satan's back has been broken. Um, and all of our work and all of our life from moving forward ought to be characterized by what happens on this first day, the Lord's day, a day of victory. Okay? Um, so again, it's not a rest from work after, uh, after being tired from toil. It's the beginning of a new week with a new type of man who has risen on that day. It signals a new day, a new age, and a new humanity. So to unpack that briefly um, before I close, so the old creation in Genesis 1 and 2, so again, to recap just what I said, on Friday, God finished his work. On Saturday, he rested from his work, so the Jews took Shabbat. And then on Sunday, a new week of work began. That was how then creation came to life. That was how God in Genesis 1, if you want to read about it, began all things. But think about this new creation that the resurrection signals. On Friday, Jesus, the God-man, finished his work. He said what? On the cross, some of his last words were, it is finished. What is he doing there? He's burying the old way of doing things. He's burying the old creation, the old man, everything that was tainted by sin and Satan and objective evil, he took inside of himself for those who will look to him, and he buried in the ground. And he rested on Saturday, didn't he? Just like he did in the beginning from his six days of work. He rested in the tomb, having finished his work on Friday. And then what happens on Sunday? A new week of work begins, a new age. Creation comes to life again, but having left the old creation and the old man in the ground, it doesn't rise. But Jesus does. He's the representative of a new order, of a new humanity. And that's what the gospel writers and Paul especially and the New Testament writers are marveling over. Something completely new has happened. So implications, rattle a few off. A new age has begun. This is not, as I've been saying, just a man rising from death. It's a man who is our representative, who represented all of us, like Adam did in, in his fall, in his disobedience. We were born into that disobedience and that... Um, resistance to God. I want to be God. I don't want God to be God. I don't want God to call the shots. I want to. We're born into that. It's easy for us to say, mine. You have to teach your kids to say yours and thank you and please. You don't have to teach them to say mine. They all learn that word on their own. There's a reason for that. It's woven into our old Adamic DNA. Um, but he died and he buried that, becoming our sin and being punished for it and enduring the price of death and hell that it merited. This is a man who represented the old humanity and who became their sin for them, died for them, suffered Satan's torments for them, God's wrath for them, and hell for them. This same man, but with a glorified body, rose, leaving all those things in the grave. Um, like I said, this is no ordinary rising from death like Lazarus. It is the rising of the representative of a new human race, a second Adam, victorious over 
everything that has formerly separated us from God, our sin, death, and hell. And what, and what the New Testament authors say is that with this rising of a new type of human who represents us, a new creation will follow him in his train, wherever his body goes. And we, the church who trust in him, we're made new, we're given a new DNA, we're made the family of God, our sins are taken away. Even though we continue to sin, we're not identified as sinners, we're identified as saints, given Christ's holiness, not because of what we do, but because of what if he has is, he is finished and who he is as we look to him for, um, to trust in him. C.S. Lewis says this from Miracles. He says, the next point to notice is that the resurrection was not regarded simply or chiefly as evidence for the immorality of the, immortality, excuse me, I wrote immorality, but that's not right. It wasn't, the resurrection wasn't looked at chiefly as evidence for the immortality of the soul. And I think a lot of us think of, hey, Christ rose, we're going to live forever. He's saying that's not, and that's what N.T. Wright says too, that's not the way that the gospel writers and New Testament writers talked about it. Rather, the New Testament writers speak as if Christ's achievement in rising from the dead was the first event of its kind in the whole history of the universe. He is the first fruits, the pioneer of life. He has forced open a door that's been locked since the death of the first man, and I would say since the sin of the first man, which was consonant with his death. He has met, fought, and beaten the king of death. Everything is different because he has done so. This is the beginning of the new creation. A new chapter in cosmic history is opened. Again, implications. Evil will end. All the evil will end. And that's good and bad news for us because we wouldn't want a new creation in which evil was still resident and reigning. That wouldn't be right. We want God to finish evil, but the problem is evil isn't just outside. It's in here. If we're honest with ourselves, we know that there are things that are terribly, terribly, unmentionably wrong with us. And if evil ends, we do too. But here's the good news. Check this out. In John 20, verse 22, there's a strange, so the good news is that there's a new humanity that the resurrection brings, as I've been saying. But to focus in on one verse that expresses this, in John 20, verse 22, there's a strange thing where the resurrected Christ meets with his disciples, surprising them again in this room, and he breathes on them. It's weird. He breathes on them, and he says, receive the Holy Spirit. And the word spirit also means breath. So he breathes on them and says, receive my breath, receive my life. That's strange. What's happening? Well, again, paralleling everything that's happening, if you understand the resurrection means a new creation, you look back to Genesis. After God creates all things and he makes man in his image from the clay of the ground, what does he do? In Genesis 2 verse 7, it says God breathes, as it were, putting his mouth to man's mouth in this intimate, intimate image. He breathes his own spirit or breath or life into man. And what? Man becomes a living being. It's what makes us, it's what separates us from squirrels or anything else, angels, anything else. We alone have the breath of God in us. And so <clears throat> that's what Jesus is saying in light of that, in light of the old creation, is that I am making a new type of human, victorious over all the stuff that I rose from, victorious over all the stuff that I died for and that I buried. C.S. Lewis again, he says, a world of nice people, content in their own niceness, looking no further, turned away from God, would be just as desperately in need of salvation as a miserable world. 
and might even be more difficult to save. Why? Because nice people don't think they need saving. They don't think they're that bad. But Christ died for nice people too because we're all enemies of God. For mere improvement is not redemption, Lewis says. Though redemption always improves people, even here and now, and will in the end improve them to a degree we cannot yet imagine. God became man to turn creatures into sons, not simply to produce better men of the old kind, but to produce a new kind of man. It's not like teaching a horse to jump better and better, but like turning a horse into a winged creature. It's a different type of humanity that's not bound. You're not identified by sin anymore. Still you sin, but it's not your master. For the first time ever, if you trust in Christ, he gives you his breath, his spirit. It makes you alive from the dead, and you no longer have to sin. You know, um, Augustine said that before, before we're made new in Christ by faith in him and his work, we are not able not to sin. Non posse, non pecare. We're not able not to sin. And everything, all of our thoughts, actions, intimations, intuitions. But afterwards, we are able. We still sin, but we are able not to sin. It's no longer our master. We are posse, non pecare. Um, so it creates a new humanity. One's under the, there are two races in the world. One's under the old Adam. Those in Christ are under the second Adam, the new Adam. One is dead in their sins and transgressions, enemies of God. The other is alive, brothers of Christ, sons and daughters of God. Not through what we do that's good, but through what he has done, through his victory, through faith in him. Um, we don't have to sin, number two. Number three, our fear of death ought to be done with if we are in Christ. He rose from the dead and, and, and it, he, he blasted open the door of the prison. Before, death was a prison that would hold us and take us down to hell and to Satan forever. But Christ endured that as the representative in your place if you trust in him. He's already paid that price. So he blows the door off of death and it creates from a prison a portal through which if we've trusted in him, we walk into life that will never end. Even though we die, the minute we die, it's a portal to seeing Christ face to face. And one day when he returns, we will be resurrected bodily and he will make all things new. He will finish what he started. And lastly, under implications, and as I close, the implication here is that all of, all of work is rest, as I said. So the first day of the week now is you don't, you don't toil and then rest from that toil. He rose starting a new age, and even as we work, we rest in the resurrected Christ. We rest in our new identity. We rest in the fact that we're free from the power of sin. We rest in the fact that death is no longer a prison. He's blown the door off of it. We rest in the fact that Satan is no longer our father. God is. God is our Father. We are brothers with Christ. But also it means that we have work to do. Um, Christ rose not on a rest day, like I said, but on the first day of, of, the, of work, of creation, of recreation. And he's sending us a message here. He's saying, now that you're a new humanity, you have the job as you abide in me of going out and preaching my gospel and living your everyday lives, new creatures in me, with me as your head as I reign from heaven until I return again. And as you go out into this broken creation, through your words and through your work, you are seeing creation made new in people's hearts as they hear the gospel and believe on Christ and come to life from the dead. And then around them as cultures are renewed. And then one day he's going to come back and he's going to finish that work. Um, so our work and our suffering, our labor is no longer wasted if it's in Christ. It's all put toward a new creation in our new humanity. That's exactly how Paul finishes his only resurrection chapter. 1 Corinthians 15, he majors on what the resurrection means for us, and he says this in the last verse. 
therefore. He doesn't say, therefore, my beloved, you're going to heaven. That's what the resurrection means. It's not what he says. What does he say? He says, therefore, my beloved brothers, verse 58, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in uh, the Lord your labor is not in vain. In other words, you have work to do. The resurrection means that we have work to do here on this earth and that it counts. It's not, as Paul says, in vain anymore. It's not in vain anymore. So I mentioned the new humanity, new creation. If we know our Bibles in the Genesis account, um, we should expect what? After a new humanity uh, that's going around and seeing creation renewed as we go, as his body, from place to place, as we live in the places that he's put us, we should expect what? A new commission. Because that's exactly what God does in Genesis 1. He creates mankind, he creates all things, and then he puts man over, charge over them, and he, and he commissions man, and he says, be fruitful and multiply, and have dominion, and cultivate my good creation, and fill the earth with my image, which is you, with people that love me, that are connected to me. Um, and what does Jesus do? After he rises from the dead and begins the process of this new humanity and starts the process of the recreation of all things, what does he do? He commissions, and this is what we're going to look at next week. He gives a commission, just like in Genesis 1, to the new humanity. He says, I have all power. I've defeated death and sin and hate, and I've broken the old order. I am the new Adam. You have nothing now to fear. Go and preach that gospel. And uh, I have authority over all things, and go and make disciples. A lot of people refer to this as the Great Commission, but if we know the narrative arc of Scripture, we should refer to this or think of this as the Great Recommission. Okay, something completely new has started because the old order has been buried, and that is our hope in everything, in everything that we do, and that is our only hope. So let's rejoice and let's pray.